0: This happened years ago, but still haunts me to this day. Back when I was in middle school, I lived next door to a small neighborhood. All we had to do was hop the fence, and I would in my neighbors where all my friends lived. We were all aged between 12 and 13, and there were 5 of us. One of the houses we were always at had a backyard on the edge of the woods. We had created trials for it complete with bridges over the creek that led to a reservoir of sorts where all the rainwater went as well as the water that drained all the sewers. I say sewers because it's runoff from the street and we use the tunnels under the road during intense games of manhunt. Anyway, we call that place the wall. The wall backed up quite literally to a house in the neighborhood and the next street over and we could clearly see the houses through the trees in any direction we looked so it's not like we were ever far. Besides the trail we took, there was a main exit along the fence to the main house aforementioned that led straight into the heart of the neighborhood. Now, the wall was right next to the next street over. On our side, where the wall sat, there were three houses. One of those houses lived a well known police officer whose kids we were friends with. The opposite side had some massive farmland to the left and a heavily wooded area to the right, complete with its own empty boarded up creepy house that couldn't be seen from the road unless it was Windsor. No one had lived there or ever been there for years, so like I said, I'm trying to paint a picture here so you can understand, we were very very close to each other's homes which makes the story even more odd. One day my friend and I, just two of us girls, decided to go to the wall, Taking the familiar trails through the woods, we made it to the wall. Weeks prior to this, the group of us had been trying to make a bridge, so we went to continue our work. Between picking up branches and heavy stones, we noticed something coming from the woods across the street, a man. This man was dressed head to toe in camouflage, typical hunting gear that I'd seen before. The weird thing was, he had a shotgun in his hand, in a residential area. Luckily, we noticed him before he did us and I'm so glad we did. When he noticed us, his eyes locked on both of us, and his pace began to quicken, and he made a beeline straight towards us. He never said a word, or even lowered his weapon. It was just in his hands, ready at any given moment. We snap out of it, and take the exit, sprinting into the heart of the neighborhood, running straight into my friend's house to tell someone. We tell her dad immediately, and he goes to check out, to see no one there. Not a trace. I don't know where or how that man was out of sight so quickly. Her dad wasted no time and was down there in seconds. The wooded area the man came from was not large, at least not large enough to ever consider hunting on and it definitely was not hunting land. It's an extremely residential area along with an elementary school that we used to walk in at least 5 minutes. No lie the school was right there, so I never understood why the man was out there especially since there was a cop who lived right next door to where we were. The hunter, I hope we never meet. That incident scared us so badly that we stopped playing in the woods and we never return to the war. If you spend enough nights camping, weird things will happen. A couple of years ago, two buddies and I did a month plus long trip around the US. We were camping the US Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management Areas, and we were driving my pickup trucks so we could get back in some fairly deep wilderness on the forest roads. After about 15 minutes on the road, we ended up in some BLM land near Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park in Colorado. It was our last night in Colorado, and we were exhausted from doing a 14er earlier that morning. We found the coordinates of a campsite online and arrived on the edge of the pavement at about 6pm. Ahead of us was a dusty two track lane that snaked through scraggly trees and brush and made its way to the top of the hill that had a view of a snow-capped peak. We hadn't passed a car in a long time. Our truck makes it to the site easily but none of us get out yet. We sit inside and look around There's a fire pit, lots of trees, but also an abandoned couch, and some other signs of human waste. Not great vibes, but it's getting late, and we aren't keen on the idea of driving anymore. We hop out and start walking around, cautiously approaching some of the garbage bags wrapped in duct tape. This seems like a place we would find a body, I say to my friends. They agree. We notice a trail that seems to go in a circle around the top of the hill, so we decide to check it out before we commit to staying. We find more trash and human waste, but nothing makes us feel like we should leave. We decide to cowboy camp, sleep on the tarp beneath the stars, and have a nice fire going. We finish off a case of beer, but even with the inebriation, we still feel uneasy. Every couple of minutes, one of us will shine a light into the woods, thinking we heard something. Even though it's our 20th consecutive night sleeping outside, it doesn't feel right. But it's late, so we start getting ready for bed. We're all carrying bear strain headlamps. I step into the woods to go pee, and walk about 15 feet without turning on my light. As I'm standing there peeing, I decide I should turn on my headlamps since the fire messed up my night vision. When I see what the beam of light illuminates, my knees nearly buckle. Joy has dropped. I stand there in silence for 10 seconds before calling out to my friends. Guys, did you see this? In the center of my beam is a bunch of bleached bones wrapped in barbed wire, hanging from a branch directly above the trail. we'd walked through in daylight. We would have certainly have noticed them in the daylight. They must have been hung there when it got dark, while we sat only 25 feet away. The consensus among us was, Ah, hell no. So we snapped a couple of photos before throwing our stuff in the park and hopping in the truck. We drive a little ways up the road to the National Park campground. I've never felt so happy to spend 25 bucks and have neighbors nearby. We will put those up during the night. Let's never meet. I come from a big country family. We live on a farm. We raise our own food and meet animals and we hunt and process. My dad's first cousin is even a licensed taxidermist, so we get a lot of hunting in. For a bit of more backstory, on the homestead I grew up on, and still live on, it was my parents, my pops' first cousin and his wife, me and my four sisters, and my four female second cousins, so four adults and nine kids, with lucky me being the only boy, and sometimes my pot brother comes to serve us too. Especially when hunting season's starting up. So hunting season deer is going on, and my pops, his brother, Uncle K and the cousin we live with Uncle V are all getting ready to go hunting. Some of us decide to go tag along, me, twelve, my sister's fifteen, and my cousin 14. We get permission from one of my Uncle K's friends to hunt in his land a ways away, basically several hundred acres of forest. Important facts during this time we're setting up my pops and uncles are being quiet while the three of us kids talk My voice hasn't changed. That's important Us kids keep chattering away while the adults are just letting us get all our energy out whilst they check the survival equipment Make sure the guns are clean and working etc strong southern southern types There's a rustling in the thick brush around us and suddenly three creepy looking guys enter the clearing They stop dead one of them has his hand on a knife on his belt, they're clearly really drunk. They keep looking between A and S, at my pops and uncles like they're debating something. My pops and uncles stand up. Last bit of the backstory, every dude in my family is absolutely huge. I'm 19 now and I'm 6 foot 5, my dad's the biggest at 6 foot 10, 280 pounds, just a deeply intimidating man, and so are the uncles VNK. The guys laugh nervously as my uncle V picks up one of the rifles and points it at them. The dudes start running out of the clearing like the devil was after them. My pops immediately says that we're clearing out. My uncles don't even question it and neither do the kids. We're freaking out. We totally take things down sloppy but my pops doesn't say anything about us messing up his cam and equipment. We get back into cell service and my dad calls the cops about seeing those weirdos. But the cops don't seem to think it's a serious thing and nothing happened. We also told the owner of the land, who took it more seriously, as he had his own kids, but we never heard anything about them appearing again in his land to his knowledge. It's at this moment that I realised, ANS, and me, and my unchanged voices were the only ones those guys could hear talking. They thought they'd come across a camp with three girls by themselves. I don't even want to think what would have happened if my dad and uncles hadn't been there. This story isn't insane like a lot of others on this sub but it's deeply unnerving to me. I was about 10, a cub scout. Every year to raise money, my troops sold popcorn, usually door to door. A leader or one of our parents would follow us in his car and drive us to different neighborhoods, so we weren't completely alone while doing this. Often though, there weren't enough volunteers to chaperone, so the adult would wait at the end of the street and check up on us every 20 or 30 minutes. I knocked on the door of his house, and a woman answered the door, but didn't fully come out. Instead, she cracked the door open and looked at me and spoke to me through the crack. This wasn't particularly odd, as most people weren't too sure what we were doing here at first, but the way she looked through the door was different. I somehow didn't notice anything off at the time, but her face was only half exposed and completely horizontal, which meant she was standing completely behind the door for some reason. I started going through my standard sales pitch, going on about supporting the troops and how high quality the popcorn was, but she stopped me and said in a low voice, ''Oh dear, why don't you come inside and tell me more about it?'' Thankfully I was a big fan of scary stories as a kid, so a alarm bell started ringing. I asked her why she couldn't come outside, and her reply in the same low tone was, ''I have cancer, I can't go outside. I didn't know anything about cancer back then, but I didn't think it sounded like a symptom. Before I could say anything, she asked me, Are you alone? Are you here with anyone else? I replied that my Cub Scout leader was down the street, and as soon as she heard that, she shut the door and locked it without a sound. I kind of just forgot about it, putting it as just a weirdo woman, so I didn't tell my parents or the leader about it. I still have no idea what she wanted me to come inside for. So, creepy lady, let's never meet. This happened around 2012, but I remember most of what happened clear as day. I worked with my girlfriend at a busy restaurant, we worked all the time, and it was a stressful job. We took a few days off and decided to fly somewhere to get away from the work, people and the town in general. I found decent deals on flights to Ocean City, MD, for two nights. She had never been on a plane. We loved the beach, and I could hit up all the local crab cake spots. It was perfect. We flew into Baltimore and rented a car to drive to OC. Nothing memorable happened for the first day. We laid on the beach, hit up all the local shops, and had forgettable food. The second full day, we woke up and went to the most recommended stop for the crab cakes. And on the way back, we stopped and got crab cakes to go from two other recommended places for later. We stopped by the local hotel to drop the food off and went to the hotel for a few drinks. No, my girlfriend at the time was a smoker and I hated it. She would also attract attention from guys, which I would deal with, but wasn't exactly thrilled about. We go to the rooftop bar at the hotel, and the bar itself is a four-sided island in the middle of a patio. It's probably 2 p.m. and a clear sunny day. We pull up chairs and there's only a few women on the left side of the bar and a guy bartender behind it. We got house margaritas. After her first drink, my girlfriend felt like she wanted to smoke but the girls and the bartender didn't have one to give her. We got refills and just with the bartender about the area and things to do but mainly kept to ourselves. The bartender seems if he was being fake Something was off, and I couldn't put my finger on it. A feeling of, I don't really want to run to the restroom and leave her at the bar, because I don't trust something. More than a few times, he asked if we were standing in the hotel. I said no, and the girlfriend said yes. He even asked what room at one point. My girlfriend went to use the restroom, a minute later, I heard a guy's voice. I didn't realise there was a group of three or four guys at the table directly behind us. They were either playing cards or just smoking, but they made some comment about her as she walked back. Great. We finished our drinks and were googling tropical drinks for her and area hotspots to check out. Three guys came up on either side of us and talked to the bartender and got beers. You could tell they were either friends or regulars. I honestly couldn't tell you if they were there when we got to the bar or came after, but they had a sleazy vibe. Me and the girlfriend ended up talking to the other couple at the bar, that had come to sit down. It was nice to be away to just relax. We always like making new friends. I didn't realise it, but one of the guys came up and either brushed against my girl or made a comment, and it rubbed her the wrong way. So in her infinite wisdom, she wanted to be bothersome to them and got up and asked to bum a smoke i didn't realize it until i turned around and there she was talking to the guy with his shirt unbuttoned and gold chains hanging down to his chest hair i didn't want to associate with them but if one of them gave her a smoke i would get the guy a beer if it meant we didn't have to go to the store she came back without a cigarette mad apparently the guy kept asking what's in it for us and said your boyfriend wants to fight us why would we give you anything i didn't want to fight them i was on vacation and i wasn't paying attention to them but I didn't like the implication of the other coming at all. Because we had a luck first day, I wanted to pack fun things into this day. So this drink was my last one. I asked for the tab, and the guy of the couple we met gave us his business card. He said we should meet him and his girlfriend at secrets at 8pm. The guys behind us kind of swarmed on all sides and slammed down a pack of cigarettes. Two smokes left inside. They said something like, here. Then they ordered another round. We found it odd but I thanked them and offered a shot, I didn't even think they replied. One asked if we were vacationing, then asked if we were staying at the hotel, and then took round of beers back to the table. I had a weird feeling, as if they were locals but didn't like us as we were visitors. Turning back to the bar, my drink was now completely full, stupid me didn't even question it. I didn't want to refill, but I figured the bartender topped me off, so I took a sip and the drink was strong. I just closed out, so maybe it was thank you for the tip. It was disgustingly strong, like rubbing alcohol, maybe even turpentine. I told my girl to try it. Boozy Susie over here takes a huge pull from my drink and nearly spit it back out. It was gross. She made a face that said it shouldn't taste like that. I couldn't even ask the bartender about it, he was gone. I don't know when he disappeared, but he was nowhere to be found. I can't remember if I fully finished the nasty thing. But here we were, in a weird place, in the middle of nowhere essentially, and these creepy guys still behind us, with no help. My girl said something along the lines of, the guys are staring, let's go. I was originally worried that she was going to chat them up and thank them before we left, but she said she felt weird. The whole vibe changed, she wanted out. I remember spending a minute or two saying bye to the couple we were going to meet later, and heading towards the doors in the hotel. Now the guys weren't at their table, Patio door. Elevator. Hotel room door. Bed. My eyes open and I turn my head right. The alarm clock reads 3am. I am face down in bed, on top of the covers. I push myself up, slide back off the bed and stand up. The slanting glass doors are wide open, as are the screen doors to the balcony. There's a breeze. I think, did the girlfriend jump off the balcony? And in that millisecond, I hear crying behind me. My girlfriend is sitting in Indian style on the floor with a clamshaw of what was $40 worth of crab sticks in her lap, crying. She said she couldn't wake me up. She asked if I remembered what happened. She said she'd been sick and crying up for 4 hours non-stop. What the hell happened? I bent over to sit her down and got hit with a wave of sickness. I ran and was in that bathroom for hours puking. By the time I came out, she was asleep and passed out again. This had to be a bad dream. I remember thinking that maybe went to the club and got wasted and blacked out. I went back to bed. We both woke up at 7am to our alarms. We had to take the rental to Baltimore and catch a flight back. We both had to be back at work at 2 today. I was shaking, she looked like hell, we both felt like death. She was shook. She said the walk back to the hotel room was scary and she didn't even remember anything after that. Wait, what? According to her, when we walked back into the hotel from the bar patio, one of the guys was in the chair near the elevators. He said something to us, but the doors closed quickly. She said when we got to our floor, two of the guys were at the end of the hall heading towards us. She said that we got in the room and they stood outside the door, and she thinks they knocked. Apparently, I laid on the bed and immediately was lights out. She couldn't wake me, and passed out herself until she woke up violently vomiting for hours. My body was shot and I was shaking, and now I am processing that these scumbags maybe followed us to our room. Part of me thought that she was exaggerating, but you know how you have some weird slow-motion flashbacks? Well, as I was grinding out on the way to the hotel room, I remember one of the guys being at the elevator. Also, as she was brushing her teeth, her mouth was blue. I went to the mirror, and so was mine, neon blue. Nothing we had that day was blue. I had light green margaritas, and vodka and root beers. This was proof that something fishy had happened. We didn't know what to do, we had to get back, we couldn't stick around. We got to the car, and I barely felt okay to drive, but I wanted to be home. We felt dirty, we were confused, and wound out of MD, and swore we were never coming back. We missed our flight, explained the situation to the desk, and somehow got put on another flight back home. We sat in the airport for hours, dying. The flight was painful too. We moved to work a few hours late that day. No one believed our story, and thought we made it up just to justify being late and we kind of never brought it up again. I googled to see if similar situations had happened and found nothing. We googled blue tongue and saw it's a side effect of a drug. I'll be honest, I felt like we were lucky we made it out of OC. I don't know if we were the target of room invasion or robbery, or if they wanted to attack or kidnap my girl. It could have turned out ugly in a lot of different ways. What if my girlfriend didn't take a huge swig? What if I drank the whole thing myself? How close did I come to ODing or death depended on the drug and its interactions with alcohol. I swear the bartender was in on it too. I did call the hotel and asked if there were any issues with people being drugged or room robberies and they said they have zero incidents and I think I let it go. I emailed the hotel from a throwaway account I created and told them to watch the hotel roof bar and bartender and never got a reply. I realise I wrote a ton but that's my story and I think about it anytime someone brings up OC. This is something that happened to I and a friend as kids and is more of a disturbing discovery than a disturbing person. We were probably somewhere between 11 and 14 at the time and it was the middle of summer. It was also something that I really didn't come to understand until much later in life, when there was no way to resolve what he and I had seen. My house was in a valley. There were a few houses along the street with it, but the hills on either side were undeveloped forests back then. Me and my friend would hike up the hill behind my house through a few miles of woods and out the other side where there was a neighborhood that had a farm stand style shop with local honey and a bunch of cheap candy. We also just hung out in the woods a lot and would tell each other scary stories as we headed back home. None of them were all that scary looking back on the ones I remember, but younger me was always a little spooked on the way back to my house. One dusk while we were heading back for the day, I spotted a bit of wire in a mound of moss. As a kid, I was always looking for interesting stuff to take home and collect, so I was immediately ready to go dig it out of the moss. When I did, I found it was a pelvis bone. It had probably been there for a long time. I remember it was pockmarked and dirty, worn away slightly from time. I was pretty scared for a second, but I remembered that all sorts of animals had pelvis bones, and it must have been from a deer or something. In my childish need to know it all, and jumping at my first non-frightening possibility, I told my friend it was a deer pelvis. We marveled at it for a bit, but put it back because I knew my dad would be mad if we brought it back. I forgot about it for a long time. Many many years went by, but I eventually learned more about the shape of human bones as opposed to animals. I remember the shape I found quite clearly. It was almost certainly a human bone, and the size wouldn't have been an adult. I wonder what else might have been in that mound, who it might have been, and if my finding could have given someone somewhere some closure. I went back and looked for it twice, thinking I might remember the part of the woods I'd been in, but I never found it again. So I recently began to help my mum settle my childhood home, and it sparked the memory of possibly the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. Me and my friends were 15. I grew up in a subdivision, about 20 minutes away from any towns. It was a very safe neighbourhood, street lights on the corners, lots of kids. Lots of my classmates lived there as well, as there was never any fear of us walking to each other's houses and staying after dark. My subdivision was about 3 miles long, and I lived at the very end of it. The last mile is a sharp right turn into a hill, and has thick woods along both sides of the street, with four houses at the bottom, all surrounded by woods. My friend Maddie lived at the entrance of the subdivision. One year, we got around 8 inches of snow and ice. It shut down the roads, people were stranded, schools closed for weeks. The first day of this snow, me, Maddie, and Kelly spent the whole day playing. We decided to have a big sleepover at Maddie's house that night. When the sun looked like it might start settling, we started the trek down to my house to get an overnight bag. By the time we finished packing, it was dark out. The woods always enhanced the darkness, but it didn't bother us. The three of us started walking, joking and enjoying the night air. As we cleared the top of the hill, we saw something that made us stop in our tracks. A hooded figure standing on the corner, illuminated only by the streetlight. They didn't move. They stood completely stiff, staring straight ahead. It was unsettling, but it easily could have been a neighbour, so with nervous laughs we started descending the hill. The figure never moves, staring straight back ahead. As we got to the bottom, we could see the hood was fur-lined and they had some sort of black mask hiding their face. We started getting nervous. At this point, we're even with this person. It's Black hour. the one streetlight illuminating the corner. After staring at the figure for about forty five seconds, Maddy finally called out Hey, stop messing with us, it's not funny. At this point the figure moved, only shuffling its feet and turned its body in our direction. They extended their hands towards us. Time stopped. I could feel my heart beat in my throat. The figure gestured come here to us. Before turning and walking into the woods, we ran. We ran as fast as our feet could take us until we reached Maddy's house and deadbolted the door behind us. The next morning when I walked home, I stopped at the corner where the figure had been, and felt pure genuine fear. There were two tracks of footprints, one leading out of the woods, and one leading back in. So, I've just been reminiscing with a friend about our trip to San Francisco three years ago, and realized that this story belongs here there were three of us, all 24 and female, in America for the first time. We went to a beer pong tournament organised by a hostel and headed to a bar afterwards with a bunch of people who grouped together. One guy seemed to know the area well and suggested we move on to another street which had a row of clubs on it. I forget the name now but we'd met some guys the previous night who mentioned the same street so it stuck in my head, thankfully. We ordered about 6 Ubers and everyone jumped in. A solo guy who tagged along with the group ended up sharing with us as the three of us didn't want to split up. He spoke to the driver before we got in and waited for us to get in the back. He then proceeded to our horror to squeeze in the back seat with us. I don't know why the taxi driver let him do this. At this point we laughed it off and told him to get in the front but he said it's okay and we started moving. After a while I realized we were back by our hostel this was weird because I knew the area we were heading to was in the complete opposite direction. I asked the cab driver where we were going and told him it should be on the X street. He said, that's not where he told me to go. And the creepy guy casually states that he was taking us back to his tent. We definitely did not want to go back to his tent. We told the driver this and asked him to take us where we wanted to go. Thankfully he complied. Even creepier the guy laughs and says to the driver, think all we could do with these girls. At this point we stopped laughing and are quite scared, it didn't help that he was squashed in the back seat with us and had an arm around my friend. He carried on making creepy jokes and a few minutes before we pulled up, he went straight in and tried to kiss my friend. She kindly told him to F off and thankfully we arrived, so jumped out. We had no idea where on this street the original group were heading, but luckily a nice and normal guy we had been talking to was standing on the corner where we pulled up. He felt really bad when we told him and apologized for leaving us with him. The guy followed us to the next place and tried to talk to us again. He said he didn't understand why my friend was so angry and couldn't understand what we were saying. It's a strong accent. He eventually left. We dealt with the situation by doing what we do best and laughing about it. For the rest of the holiday, we called a hostel our tent. It's not until we look back that we realize what a dangerous situation we put ourselves into and how worse it could have been if we'd gotten out of the cab in a strange place or if we had an equally creepy driver. When I was 19, I worked for a company that allocated labour to rural areas of Australia. Basically, what you did was tell them when you were available and they'd send you to a remote farm for a few weeks where you'd do whatever they needed done. It was hard work and long hours, but good pay and good fun if you got in with a nice group of workers. When this occurred, I was working on a large property. I was told it covered roughly the same land mass as the state of Maryland, USA, about 9 hours from Sydney City. And the property itself was about 40 minutes from the nearest town. In short, it was in the middle of nowhere. I was working at the farm clearing bushland with three other guys my age from the city. Our boss was a guy called Jeremy who owned the farm and supervised us while helping out with the work. He was pretty laid back and was generally really good to us. This summer in particular was very hot and the work was hard. So one day when the temperature was about 38 degrees celsius, about 100 fahrenheit, Jeremy decided to give us the afternoon off. He said he knew a waterhole on the farm about a 25 minute drive north. I was keen for a swim but the other guys just wanted to relax for a bit. So him and I hopped in one of the work trucks and started heading across the property. It was mostly wide, empty expanses with a few clumps of scattered bushland. Jeremy wasn't much of a talker, so we drove more or less in silence. After about 20 minutes, however, he suddenly perked up and jabbed me in the ribs. Do you see that over there, beneath the two dead trees? I should mention here that if you're not familiar with inland areas, particularly those in Australia, they are brown or red and mostly flat and bland meaning any bright colours stick out like a sore thumb. So, if you can imagine our surprise when we could see a large blue angular structure in the far distance. We steered in its direction, and as we got closer, we realised it was a huge blue shipping container just sitting in the middle of nowhere. Jeremy was perplexed. I asked him if he knew what it was, but he obviously didn't. He said he hadn't seen it when he drove through the same area about five weeks before, and he wanted to go and see what it was. Initially, we pulled to a stop about 100 metres away from it, At this stage, I had a really bad feeling. The whole thing wasn't right, It's hard to explain, but if you can imagine seeing a foreign object in the middle of a huge barren expanse, it just had to be something weird. Jeremy, however, wanted to investigate, which I understood, given it was his property, but in truth, I was really anxious. As we got closer, things got even more bizarre. There was a big diesel generator behind it thumping away, and a CCTV camera on each side. All motion activated, so they buzzed from side to side, following us as we moved around. I tried to reason with Jeremy, something along the lines of, with all this security, someone obviously doesn't want us here, let's just go. He brushed me off however, reminding me that it was his farm, and whoever had put it here was trespassing, so he wanted to go inside. Despite all the surveillance, there was only a small padlock on the huge door. We had some bolt cutters in his toolbox, and after a bit of a struggle, we broke the lock and went inside. The first thing I noticed was the rush of cold air as we got in. The place was air-conditioned, which I must admit was quite pleasant on such a hot day. We searched around for a light switch, but I could already see that this was some sort of IT setup. There were flashing LEDs all around the place, and the sort of hum you hear when a hard drive is working hard. When we finally switched on the lights, you could see a sophisticated, albeit somewhat cluttered, office setup. There were hard drives the size of bar fridges and other computer equipment lining the walls, sometimes piled two or three high, and plastic storage boxes scattered around the far wall, and several desks with computer monitors arranged in the middle, complete with rolling office chairs. At this stage, I felt like I was in one of those nonsensical dreams. This made absolutely no sense. We wandered to the middle and sat down at the desk to see if the computer would give us any idea of what the hell was going on here. My heart was racing and I just wanted to bolt. We had been seen by the CCTV, so if anyone was monitoring, they already knew we were here. Jeremy, on the other hand, was adamant we get to the bottom of this. So I put on a brave face and started looking through the computer. This went on for a while, but in short, neither of us had a very high grasp of technology outside of Facebook and Microsoft Word. The best I can describe it from my lay position is that it was an endless list of computer talk. It was like the old Napster or LimeWire download screens. They looked like they were constantly picking up and receiving data, and then recording it on several windows. I gave up on the computers, and walked cautiously over to the far end of the container, to the big pile of storage boxes. By then, I was pretty sure no one else was there, and there was nowhere really to hide, but I was still incredibly on edge. I decided, against my better judgement, to see what's inside all these boxes. My brief shift through the boxes still makes me feel sick to my stomach. It didn't take me long to realise that this box was full of posters, DVDs and photos, all including children, doing... you know what? One thing that gets to me is that it was all neatly ordered into folders and smaller boxes. These people were organised. I immediately recalled, jumped over and ran over to Jeremy. I could hardly string attendance together. I said something to the effect of, Mate, get out, they're exploiting children. Go. Get the hell out. I dragged him out, composed myself and managed to explain what I saw. We jumped back into the truck and sped back to the house. The farm had no mobile reception and we hadn't brought a satellite phone. So we had to get back to the landline to call the police. Once we called them they still had to make it all the way from the farm to the nearest police station which was in a town about half hour from the town closest to the farm, as I mentioned very very remote. We waited talking frantically about what we'd seen until the cops arrived almost an hour later. They arrived with two four-wheel drives and we jumped in and led them back. This is where it gets worse. By the time we got back the container door was open and there was a fire inside. We only had two small extinguishers in the car and these did very little. The fire department took an hour to get there, by which stage most of the damage was already done. An arson report by the federal police found almost no evidence of the computer equipment described and only traces of paper and cardboard. This meant whoever ran it knew we were there and had time to come remove most of it and get away. There were various ways to get off the property and the landmass was huge, so there was no real way to trail them. Since the police hadn't taken us all too seriously in the first instance, Probably due to poor explanation on the phone, aerial surveillance was also impossible by the time we had pierced it all together. I took a keen interest in following it up, but with no real evidence of who might be responsible, the investigation went cold. I have kept in contact with Jeremy and the shipping container is still there on the farm as it's too expensive to move. I will never forget what I saw in those boxes. So over the past couple of years, I've shared this story at many a party, dinners, etc. And one of my friends recently told me about this subreddit and encouraged me to share it. So here it is. September 2010, my boyfriend Dave, his best friend Tony, my best friend Liz and I were all coming back to our hometown for our final year of college after spending the summer in London. We'd had a fantastic time staying in my uncle's apartment partying and exploring such a big city it was great. We'd stopped in a B&B for the night about half the way home and were planning to get home by 6pm. We all woke up early, about 4 or 5 maybe, ready to set off again when we discovered that someone had obviously driven too close to our car and broke the right wing mirror off. Seeing as this was my dad's birthday present to me and I'd had it barely two months, I was absolutely fuming. We asked the landlady where we could possibly find spares or something to use for the time being. She said she'd driven past a makeshift scrapyard or something a while back. She wasn't sure if it was still there, but she drew us a rough map and we got back on the road. I wasn't very sure she was right about her directions, because the closer we got to the area she'd circled it in, the more desolate surroundings were. The roads got more difficult and had gone back from stone to dirt. Around us, there weren't any farms anymore just long weedy grass and patches of forest. It had basically become a moor. We were about to head off because of the wild animals and I'd just have to get over being a paranoid driver and deal without my wing mirror. When surely enough, my boyfriend pointed out in the front to a handwritten sign, directing us two miles down the road to a calf and car spares. We drove down into a little cove surrounded by forest and all got out, except for my friend Liz. who was asleep in the back seat. There was a tiny cream heart with calf spray painted on the roof, a cavern and a hill of metal and bits of cars. As to be expected, we were the only visitors parked up front. The sun was up, but no light or people were around. I guess they were still sleeping. It was about 6 anyway. We all walked up to the scrap pole and I had a fumble through, looking for a wing mirror or any sort of mirror that could do for the time being until I could get it repaired. Tony picked up what could only be at least a decade old mirror and suggested we take it and go, but me, being stupid sincere me, insisted we have to give them some money for it. I can't just take it and go. I knocked on the door and waited. A big, hard-faced man answered the door, and at first looked pissed off and tired. Then he smiled to me at a two-tooth smile. He leered at me for a few seconds, then, seeing the boys approach, asked what we wanted. Tony handed him the mirror and asked how much for it. He said nothing, just to get to know us, to which I thought was fair enough two more men then left the patio door on the other side they turned and smiled both skinheads with teeth like meth addicts and came over they stank he gave them a mirror and told them to go attach it to our car he then introduced himself as ian sat us down on the patio chairs and offered us some sandwiches i politely declined but he insisted we must be hungry and told me to come in that women are the best at making sandwiches i declined again finding him a little bit sexist at this point and when he asked again, Dave, more sternly, reinforced that I said I don't want to come in. Ian muttered something and then came and sat on the chairs with us. It became awkward very quickly as he started asking questions. It started off innocently, like how old we were, and where we were from etc, and then became a little uncomfortable. He asked if I had a boyfriend, to which Dave answered, and then started asking us both what we'd like to do to each other, how often we have intercourse and weird private stuff like that, to which we didn't answer, we sat in silence until we heard Liz scream. When we turned around, I saw one of the men meant to be fixing on the wing mirror with his hand in the back window, grasping Liz's leg. The other was looking around nervously behind the car. We got off immediately and sprinted off to the patio, Tony ran after the guys, but they both headed into the forest. Liz was hysterical. She'd woken up to find herself on her own in the car and a man's hand running up her leg. I can't even imagine how terrifying it must have felt. I got in the back seat with her and consoled her while Dave came around the other side to get in and told her some nails were on the floor. We looked over and there were about 12 of them arranged around the tire, like the guy was ready to pop them. I couldn't really think why at the time, but now I wonder where they got all those car parts from. We decided it was enough. We didn't want to spend any more time there, mirror or no mirror, and were ready to go when Tony was the last to get in the car. He closed the back seat door, As we looked back, we saw Ian re-emerge from the house with something long in his hands, running towards us. My vision adjusted when we got a bit closer, and then, I realised he was holding a rifle. A hunting rifle. At that point, I actually burst into tears and hit the engine, slamming on the accelerator as hard as possible. The car started to go, and we got up to about 90. Forgetting the dirt roads, and just driving over whatever, until that scrapyard was out of sight. We didn't stop looking behind us until we were safely on the motorway, getting home. To this day, whenever I go to London, I take the train instead. I'm still terrified I'll meet them again. I wrote a couple of days ago about the creepy Mime Stalker. This is by no means the only creepy thing that has happened to me, and the more I thought about it today, the more I realised I have had over my fair share of scary encounters. Sooner or later, I'll add them all. But the one I'm writing about now is far away from the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to me. When I was in my early 20s, I had a friend with a psychotic alcoholic father. She didn't live with him. He lived in a remote little coastal town. Now and again, we would go together to visit him and stay the night. My relationship with him was creepy in itself, but that isn't the subject now. One night, when we were visiting, my friend and her dad had a drunken blow-up and he kicked us out of the house. It was about midnight, we had gotten a lift down, and didn't have a car. My friend's dad lived about 4 kilometers out of town, a huddle of 2 or 3 shops, by way of a dirt road. We started walking down the dirt road to the town, where there was a telephone booth. This was in the days before it was commonplace to have a mobile phone. I was going to call my folks, who lived about an hour and a half away, and see if they would come and get us. The whole way to town, my friend was drunkenly moaning and crying about her broken relationship with her father, and she hadn't let up by the time we got to the phone booth. She sat on the bench next to the phone while I woke my parents up. They agreed to come and get us and I sat down on the bench for the long wait. Shortly after this, a van appeared and parked just behind the bench we were sitting on, maybe 5 meters away. There were two young men in the front seats and they were looking at us. If that didn't make me nervous enough, the van door slid open and I saw there were a number of young guys in the back. I don't remember how many, more than two. The place where we were sitting was deserted. There were no houses nearby, just more road, no people, nowhere to run, no one driving by. It was a crappy, middle of nowhere town. I stood up so I could see them better, and kept my eyes fixed on the van full of men, acutely aware of our vulnerability. What I saw was that they were looking back at us. They were talking amongst themselves, quietly at first. Then they started talking more and more loudly, and it became evident that they were deliberately talking loudly enough for us to hear. They were talking about pulling us into the van and taking us somewhere to have intercourse with and murder us. I can't remember the exact words, but that was the gist of it. My whole body was... not shaking, quaking with terror. I couldn't take my eyes off the men. I remember the face of one of them so clearly, I could draw it now. It was just sitting in the door of the van, looking at me with no expression, looking at me with dead eyes, looking at me like I was a thing. All this time, my drunk friend hadn't stopped sobbing to herself. Whether she knew the van was there or not, I couldn't say. I knew I had to tell her about the danger, but I was actually so full of terror I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. That was when the most incredible thing happened. My friend's father, he would never apologise to anyone in his life, he was the most awkward prick alive appeared, drunk in his car. It's hard to describe how unlikely it was for him to do this. He could hold a grudge like no one you've ever met. He was such a stubborn guy. He and my friend had an emotional reunion the whole time our eyes were fixed on the van the men had stopped talking and were just watching us let's go i said we got back in the car and started heading for my friend's dad's house the van started up and began to follow us i tried to explain to my friend's dad about the men but he said i'll just slow down and they can pass they slowed down to crawl behind us then they began to shout out the windows screaming threats they followed us all the way down that dirt road and then all the way down the driveway of my friend's dad's house They just sat in the van behind us, and we sat in the car, waiting to see what would happen. All of my dad's friends' neighbours were holiday homes, and no one was in that night. We knew that if a group of men decided to get out of the van and carry out their threats, we would get no help. After a very long time, the van backed out of the driveway and they left. My parents came in a panic to the house when they couldn't find us at the shops. My friend's dad hid in shame, and I went back to my family's house. I've been asked if I went to the police, but I can't remember, I don't think I did. It was a messed up time in my life, but that incident changed me forever, and I'm a very fearful person now, and very overprotective of my kids, and I don't want to change, because I'd rather be like this than accidentally trust one of those millions of psychos out there.